0: Hey there and welcome to Zero to One Humans, a podcast that tells stories of ordinary people who have made some extraordinary life choices. Join us as we talk to artists, travelers, writers, athletes, entrepreneurs, and just generally good people to find out the backstory of how they got going from zero to one. My name is Terence and I am your host. Urged on by a small grunt, cartoonist Sunny Liu embarks on a project to reimagine Singapore's history. He would end up creating history by emerging as the first Singaporean to win the Ice nurse, widely described as the Oscars of the comic industry, for his book The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai. Come hear about his journey from part-time gigs with the New Paper to the internationally renowned book. We discuss the blind faith needed to stay on course, the future of art in Singapore, and comics as a form of raising awareness on issues that matter. Hi, Sunny. Uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Terrence. Thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. And will you kick us off today by telling us a little bit about who Sunny Lewis?
1: Who am I? Um, I normally say that I'm a cartoonist. I think, yeah, I think cartoonist is the best way to describe myself. Because I, I think a uh, comic artist tends to be something... You know, when you, you see comic artists, you tend to think of someone who draws, and I think cartoonist encompasses a bit more, uh, both drawing and uh, writing as well.
0: And I assume most days you live in the world of drawing DC, Marvel. You're reading, uh, this is the work that you currently do as a cartoonist, and is what most people can only dream of. Um, talk us through your journey from from school to studying philosophy, eventually becoming a full time independent artist. What what was that journey like? <laughs>
1: Quite a few years involved. Uh, I mean, I, I think when I was younger, I, I kind of thought that I wanted to do something that was maybe a writer or or even like draw like draw comics. But I I don't think it was ever a concrete sort of ambition because uh, partly because I was I, I think I was based in Singapore and when you're in Singapore, I think the school system guides you along a certain path, right? Especially if you're if if you're too, if it's, if it's too kind of okay in school right? if your academic results yes. are not too bad then you sort of follow that academic path and that's what I did for I think at least uh, the first 19 years of my life right? I went from like primary school to secondary school to JC and college and so only in college that I sort of discovered uh, well I got a chance to do my first comic that I got paid for which was with the new paper I think that kind of sparked the actual belief that I could uh, have a career in the arts get yeah, paid to draw yeah exactly
0: yeah mm. And I think you went at some point in time you went from studying philosophy at Cambridge eventually to, to RISD. What was that transition like and, and what influenced that decision?
1: Well it, it wasn't actually a transition. I I did complete the course at, at uh in philosophy and then I came back to Singapore and worked for about a year in a company that did educational C D ROMs.
0: Right. C D ROMs um, back back in those days.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so they they would they would teach things like math and English and I would do the illustrations uh you know to accompany them but yeah i I think i spent a year doing that but i still wanted to to do comics and learn more about art because up to that point i've been self-taught so-called right i felt i needed to learn more and try to find a way to make it more of a career because that that job although it got i could got to draw illustrations it it was it wasn't it felt like a dead end in a way so i applied for art school and, and went to university after that
0: and, and how does one become good at, uh, at being a, a cartoonist or a comic artist, just based on when you look around your peers who are performing at your level? Well, I, oof,
1: it's a tough one. Like all arts, you have to sort of uh, practice the craft. I think everyone I knew at art school who was good at, you know, whatever they did, whether it's sculpture or comics or architecture, they, they put in their hours. I think they, they were all very hardworking. And I, I guess I, I'm in the category, especially going to art school after going to college and, you know, before that. I mean, school fees are not, not cheap, right? So whenever I, would, I saw my school fees, I would feel quite sick in the stomach. I am like, this is a lot of money. It kind of compelled me to work even harder. <laughs>
0: Right. And you you clearly were good, at least by industry standards, right? So in in 2017, you won the Eisner Award. And for those of us who don't know, it is the equivalent of the Academy Awards in in the comics world. And I think through that event, most people came to know about you. But for folks who forget, this is after years of toil and hard work as, as an artist. What kept you going on through all these years? And what is the hard part that no one really talks about?
1: Well, I, I talk about it all the time. I talk about the sort of financial uh, challenges for a long time. Right? I think between graduation and the iceness was like almost like 10 years plus. During that time, I was very aware that I was I wasn't earning as much as my peers like in other industries. Now things are, are better, I guess, but if I look at the actual numbers, I'm probably like 10 years behind my my, uh, my friends in terms of savings and you know so-called assets, just because getting to where I am now has taken so so, so long.
0: And and it's a very real consideration, right, in Singapore when things are very practical, etc. How did you wrap your, your head around that?
1: Uh, blind faith to some extent. Uh, and, <laughs> and I guess, I mean, the, the 10 years leading to that, you know, every now and then you, you would get sort of the career advancement a little bit, right? So you, you get a, a new project in DC or Marvel, you get some award or nomination, and I think every one of those things help give you a sense that you are progressing rather than stagnating. And, and, and I guess I, I do feel, you know, every few years, I would feel like I was hitting a career plateau, right? And I would uh, wonder if I should do something else, like teach more, maybe, you know, go to lecture a bit more at NTU or, or LaSalle, uh, or take up a job in advertising, for example. But, but somehow, somehow something would, would happen that would make you feel, okay, this is something worth pursuing
0: a few more. And draw you back onto the the path.
1: Yeah, yeah. And same, same, thing, same thing with Charlie Chan, right? The, the book that I, I did. At a point in time, I, I I always wanted to do my own book, a full-length uh, graphic novel that I wrote and drew. And I, I saw this as sort of my, my last attempt at it, right? my last chance at doing something of that scale. And I, I think it was just fortunate that it turned out to be, to have done pretty well, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and in today's discussion of your Zero to One story, I actually want to talk a little bit about this very comic that you got recognized for at the Eisen's Award, which is the art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai. And for those of us who may be unaware, this graphic novel, Sony presents a a very creative view of the Singapore story by by attempting to describe an you know alternate history of Singapore, which unfortunately, at some point in time, got called out for uh, sensitive content, uh, potentially you know, undermining the legitimacy of the Singapore government. Um, take us back to the, the the moment when you first conceived this idea. Why did you decide on this particular narrative and, you know, something that could, could be particularly sensitive, right? Uh,
1: so it goes back to, let's see, how, how, how did it begin? I mean, I've always been interested in comics history. And as a, as a cartoonist, I'm interested in, in the art form. So I was reading books about comics history and there's one particular book I think was called Comics, Comics in you know, the X and Graphic Novels by, I believe, Roger Scruton. It, it was basically a international survey of comics, uh, I guess mostly focused on France, Japan and the US and UK. And what I discovered reading that book was that I was learning about real-world history as I was learning about comics history. So when, when discussing, for example, Tezuka or Robert Crumb, they would also be describing the, the times they were creating in. So, for example, the counter revolution in the US while Crumb was drawing his comics. And so I, I had this idea then that I could do a, a book or a comic that on the surface was about a comics history of Singapore, but was in fact an exploration of its actual you know, so-called actual history. And that was a was basic idea, but it took a, quite a few years before it, I actually was able to do the project. Partly because, A, it was hard to explain that idea to any, anyone. So I will try seeing this idea of people like, mm, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. You know, they, they couldn't understand what the, this book would be, right? And they say, well, why don't you do this instead? The other factor was that I couldn't imagine getting paid for to do, to do this book because Singaporean publishers at the time, or even now, don't pay a lot of money for any local book. And I couldn't imagine an international publisher being interested in a book that was so Singapore-centric.
0: Yeah. And on, on the point about the book being potentially sensitive, well, was that a consideration at all to you? Or is it just like, oh, this is my art. I'm going to go ahead and express myself.
1: Uh, I, was, I was aware that it, it was... Potentially sensitive, yes. Uh, which is partly why I, I converted to Singapore citizenship at some point while I was doing <laughs> the book. Because uh, I've, been, I've been aware that people on PR sometimes get their uh, PRs not a, not renewed, <laughs> let's say, if, if they dabble in politics. But beyond that, because of that awareness, I, I was very careful with my research and whatever was in the book. Right? I, I, I double-checked all its references. I got a lawyer to look at it, a historian to look at it. So I, I felt pretty safe in terms of the claims made in the book as far as that, that went. So, so if they wanted to fault me, they, they wouldn't be able to fault me on factual information, for example. That's right.
0: Yeah. And, and also, I read that the whole project took nearly two years end-to-end to, end to complete, from research to, you know, writing, drawing, editing, publishing, all this with no idea if anyone would actually, you know, read or buy the comic. How did you decide to go all in on on this uh, on this book?
1: So the the reason why I finally started on it was because Epigram Books had received a pretty large grant from the MDA, with which they were supposed to do five local comics. Uh, Edmund Edmund Wee, who is you know the publishing publisher at uh, mm-hmm. Epigram, approached a few of us local artists to, to do books, and I think at the time they were offering us, if I'm not wrong, they were giving thirty k per book, something like that, of 20, thirty or twenty k, and then of which I think twenty would go to the artists, ten would go to the publishing costs. And so doing, uh, this felt this like the perfect time for me to do this book, right? Because was, it was meant to be local uh, comics about local content. The rest of the books, I think, that came out from that project were about 120 pages long each. Right? Actually, they were, they were shorter books. And, and this book, I, I, at that point, when I first started, I thought maybe I can make it 120 pages. But it became clear as I was doing it that it needed to be a much longer book. But having done, I, I think having done the first 5 or 10 pages, I, I had a sense that this book was had something to it, right? It lakes it it, it, it had some kind of concept that was interesting, that I hadn't quite seen before. And I was pretty sure that it was I had this conviction, <laughs> let's say, that, that it, it, it would it could be something special. Uh, and I think that was what carried me through the, the whole project over the, the two years.
0: Yeah, and, and I believe, you know, most artists, when they start with a a project or something that's dear to their heart, they, they have that conviction. But I think the hard truth is that not every artist may end up finding runaway success like you did with the art of Charlie Chan Hok Chai. And I guess for those who, you know, aren't lucky enough to get interest from overseas publishers, etc., what are some lessons that aspiring artists can learn from your journey and how they balance I guess, the rice bowl and the you know, paintbrush for, for that matter.
1: Um, I, I guess you would you would think of that in terms of your commercial versus your personal work at some level. Whew, that, that's also a tough one. I, ideally, you, you want your commercial and your personal stuff to sort of merge together, right? So I think someone like Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore right there, yeah, I, I think they, they have a convergence of those things. For most of us, we, we have to, I guess, try to get there. It's, it's going to be a tough journey, I think. In comics, I, I, for most part, the, the money is made in mainstream comics, things like Marvel, DC. So if you're working outside of that, you, you are looking at much lower page rates or book advances.
0: Um, yeah. And, and take, take us back to that time, right? You, you were going through this journey. On average, I, I read somewhere, you know, if you translate, you divide the, the amount you receive over X years, over the months you worked on it, it translates to less than, you know, one, one to two grand a month. Um, did, did you struggle? How did you deal with it back then? Because these are very real issues, I guess, for, for people who live in you know, expensive cities like Singapore and trying to be an artist.
1: Well, for, for one thing, I wasn't working exclusively on Charlie Chandos those two years, right? So I also did other projects in between to, to sort of pay the bills a little bit. But I was also living off my savings from previous projects before the book was, was, was being made. So a combination of site, work on the side and draining you know, the savings,
0: I guess, for those two years... And the conviction that kept you going?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I, I believe in the book enough to, to to get it done.
0: And and what can we do to, I guess, you know encourage more people to pursue this path uh, if it's truly their passion, right? Be, beyond, I guess, the conviction that they have in their we, hearts.
1: We, as in you and me or
0: <laughs> Singapore? People in general, the society. Uh, well,
1: in, in Singapore, at least, I think a lot of the funding from arts comes from the state, unfortunately. Unfortunately. I think 90% of, of, of uh, arts is funded by the government here. If you'd ask me, I, I would say that the government should let the NAC lose a lot more, right? In, in terms of...
0: Uh, As in, take more risks?
1: Take more risks, risk, be more independent. You know, like, I, I think right now the NAC is an arts organisation, but it's also a, a stat bot at its core. So it, it sort of has to follow a lot of rules and a lot of uh, regulations. Yeah, so I think that restricts what they're able to fund, and it makes the art landscape a lot less diverse and a lot less in- interesting you know I think a lot of artists who want to do or say things which might not be what NAC can, can support would find it hard to get the funding to do so especially you know if, if, I, if I compare it to let's say the the UK right where, where I read articles about how most of the actors today for example upper or middle class you know, because, because lower class uh, actors can't afford to, become, to stay actors, right? And I think it's similar in Singapore where my observation is that a lot of people who do the arts are from more fortunate backgrounds because they can afford to take the risk. Like, like myself, Like my, my dad was a doctor. My sister is used to work in, in, in finance. So I could be sort of the black sheep to pursue this risky path. So I, I think the government has to be more aware of that. And, and if they if want to get a more diverse art scene, they they will need to be a lot uh, less restrictive in, in the funding.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And, and just curious on, on the point of being a mm-hmm. black sheep, were, were there any drawbacks you, you you faced from family pressures, et cetera, growing up saying, oh, you know, Sunny, this is not a good path no, in life. No, like my parents were very
1: supportive. I, I must say they 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 never dissuaded me. they were, But, they, but they, they were very concerned, obviously, right? So they, they would always ask me, what my next project was, how much money I was earning, <laughs> all the time. It kind of stopped now, but uh, for a good for a good ten for a good ten years, it was like a you know, monthly thing. Be, hey, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? Can earn that enough money or not? <laughs> so it was yeah yeah and and, and, and I yeah, yeah and
0: I guess the, these are these are very real concerns. I think in a, in a city like Singapore, which is becoming increasingly expensive. Um, mm. so re- recently there was a big hoo ha in the newspaper stating that you know artists are considered the least essential role. In society, mm. um, what are your thoughts around that? Actually,
1: well, oh, that that survey and that infographic, I think was very misguided. <laughs> yeah, I I I know that the company that, that did the survey gave some kind of press release, but it was, it was such an odd press release to me. Like the press release was trying to explain why they did a lot of silly things in a very officious way. <laughs> like we did these things, but you know, you know, we, we, and then they gave all these rationales that didn't make sense. Well, it, essentially. That article was supposed to be about whether we should pay essential workers more. That was the core of it. Uh, but somehow it got sidetracked. The, the survey takers sidetracked themselves into trying to trying to find out what the most unessential workers were. It wasn't even an open survey. They, they give a list of, of things, right? Which, you know, would in the first place skew the results because you only give people 12 choices. They would say, oh, these are the ones that I think are the least essential. Beyond that, I mean, I, I had no clue why this was a, had any re- relevance in terms of... Uh, article's uh, main core mission i guess at the same time maybe it does reflect a general sense that most people would think that art is not as important in their lives as other things true to some degree right the degree to which basic needs like food yeah, but you know if, if you're talking with just food shelter and water most jobs would <laughs> be essential whether you're a lawyer uh even, even a doctor is already essential in that sense, right? If you think of it that way. So be, beyond those core things, I think. Uh, so I, I think that's why if, if you think of work as being important, just in terms of just uh, very basic needs, uh, then you're basically saying that if you're not a hunter gatherer or a farmer, you're probably not very really important to society. So I, I think so. The, I think I think there's a there's a there's a misconception there about what's important and what counts as important in society as a whole.
0: With that as a backdrop, like, are you optimistic about the arts in in a? place like Singapore in the in coming future?
1: Uh, in, in the sense that we, the economy, well, okay, post-COVID-19, I don't know, but before this pandemic, I think Singapore is a good economy, it's growing, and I think that in itself provides a kind of stability to allow people to pursue more diverse careers. Right, so you've got uh, graphic design, illustration, writing. And you can look at it. Just look at the number of novels that are being written now compared to ten years ago. I think I think it shows that there is more room for pursuing the arts in Singapore. Whether or not you will pay better, that that I think is is a big question, right? Because I think most people who are in the arts still rely on a day job to to survive. Oh, well, that, that that's a tough one because the main reason people give normally is that Singapore is a small market, so you can't really survive just locally and you have to grow internationally which is gonna also be a bit tougher right because you're trying to write for a local audience because that's your where you come f- come from right at the same time you're not sure whether that will allow you to reach a bigger audience overseas
0: yeah that makes sense well I guess you know in, in the example you are a good example of anything that's possible right I think so I think people listening in with, with that uh, conviction and the ambition there's always models to to look up to. Like the other Chinese. To some degree. Yeah, to some degree. Um, I, I want to switch gears a little and talk about uh, one of your latest work, which is Antibiotic Tales, uh, which I believe is a collaboration with the School of Public Health uh, at the NUS to raise awareness about the health issues behind antimicrobial resistance. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what, what's the backstory there?
1: It was a bit more of a collaboration with uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Suli Yang, who is um he's an expert in, in, in uh in the field, and he approached me to do this comic, and I was drawn to it partly because I've I've been just I I've read articles about you know the misuse of antibiotics for quite a while, and, and how dangerous that is to us as a human race but also because partly a more personal uh, reason was because my dad was, you know, a doctor and he wanted me and my sister to follow his path at some level, but neither of us, you know, became, obviously, went in medical school. And for me, doing comics about medicine at some it's level... alternative. Yeah, close alternative <laughs> to, 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 to do that. So I've been working with him quite a lot, not just on this book, but also on the more recent uh, comics about COVID-19. And,
0: and, and I guess Dr. Su you know, once mentioned that conferences and workshops on antimicrobial resistance were largely echo chambers, right? Where you kind of preach to the choir. Um, and for me, it's quite interesting to find out that comics can actually be a form of communication and raising awareness. What are your thoughts around this this form of communication? For me, it's, it's I, I've never thought about it that way, but maybe it's something that's very um, endemic to, to the comic world.
1: Well, I mean, comics are... Partly visual, or sometimes even totally visual. So I think that always makes it a little more accessible to a wider audience in some ways. Yeah, if you just look, if you look at, for example, your IKEA catalog, right? Uh, IKEA how to put your furniture together book. That's in a way a comic, right? It's got visuals. It's got uh, information that presented in a visual way, or, or any of your guidebooks. You know, a, a lot of those things have illustrations in them. Yeah, I so I, I think it, it's it's very it makes it makes things a lot more accessible at that level so I can see why a lot of people would want to use graphics to convey information yeah, yeah.
0: what were some particular challenges around this because it's quite a technical topic right and then you, you're trying to convey it through a cartoon um, what, what was that journey like you, you have to learn a topic from scratch mm. and communicate a narrative talk, talk us through that
1: well so the young would kind of sit down with me and he would tell me what his he would just tell me everything he, he sort of wanted in the comic, right? He would get a brain down, I, I, I would record it on a you know, voice recorder and take notes at the same time. And then I would compile the notes together and then do some additional research. And if I had any questions, I would get back to him and ask him you know, specific questions about any areas where I felt unsure about in this case, I created a list of possible narratives that could tell a story, right? So, the, for example, one was the, the one that we finally did. Another one was uh, a story from the point of view of the bacteria itself, from their point of view versus, you know, the, the human interventions to, to destroy them. And the and Young chose the one he liked best, and we went from there, like, we did thumbnails. And mm-hmm. I guess once you have the story down, to some degree, it's a mechanical process. You do the thumbnails, and then you do the final art. Uh, after 10 years of working in comics it's quite it's it's become more straightforward i guess the process you sort of know what you have to do to to get a, a book that's decent out i think
0: yeah and do you draw inspiration from particular sources i know it particularly in the art of chai Chang hok chai there were a variety of influences right whether it's a japanese manga british war comics um how do you draw those influences into your work today
1: some of it, I think it's uh, subconscious. It just something that you read or heard of and it just comes out without you thinking too much about it. Other things you have to ponder a bit more, right? So if you're doing a narrative, you have to decide what is the best way to tell a story. Well, maybe there is no best way, right? Maybe there's no objective way of saying this is the best way to tell a story. But on a subjective level or a personal level, I think you can you have a feel for it, right? So you think, I want to tell a story about a particular topic. You know, what to me personally feels like the best vehicle for it yeah. yeah so i i i don't think you you, have a hard and fast rules that can you know be applied it's just something that you feel through experience and whether it works or what not you, you won't really know till it comes out. but how readers respond to it so i, I think,
0: just yeah. just as what happened to you know in the initial conception of the runaway book
1: yeah or any, any other book that did run away right like <laughs> Every every book you do, you I think every book I've done, I, I, I hope that it would do really well would be a, be a bestseller, but most of them did not become bestsellers. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, well, I guess that's that's the nature of, of art, right? And some people, some get recognised and, and some don't, no matter how, how good yeah, they, yeah. they are. it's,
1: it's a, a lot of uh, yeah. luck involved, I think, in the whole process.
0: And, and for those who are following you and following your work, is there any upcoming projects that we can look forward to? The one that's closest to fruition would be... A book
1: called Red Lines that I'm doing with Cheryn George, just a book about cartoon censorship around the world. It's 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 did, is done in a different style. I think people who, who know my work might be a bit surprised when they see it because it it's uh, not in the style that I usually do my work in.
0: Right, and and when when is this is this something that's uh, coming out soon, and the the,
1: the draft, the first draft has been really been, been completed, but the because it's Sharon is academic, right? So this book is in a way an academic book as well. So it's go, it's, it's gotta go through a pretty long process of vetting from the from the publisher. Uh, so it probably out in early 2021.
0: Right. Yeah. Cool. So we'll look forward to that. Um mm-hmm. I, I thought we could wrap up our, our session today with some, you know, generally advice on your, your thoughts about the future, uh, how young people can think about doing something unconventional in line with their passions, anything that you would share at all?
1: Mm. I get asked this sometimes, but I, I feel like that's a bit too open-ended, a bit too vague, because I think, uh, yeah, it, it really depends on what what, the, what each person wants to do, right? I think we have, we have as a human race, we have such diverse ambitions and, and goals and interests. It's really, hard, it's really hard to say whether there's any one thing that will lead you there, so... Normally when I get asked questions, question, I will ask for more specifics. <laughs> like, what, what do they really want to do? What do they want to achieve? And then maybe I can give more concrete advice. Otherwise, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, difficult, I think.
0: Yeah, maybe if you could put a phrase or sentence on a big billboard uh, to shout out to aspiring artists who are listening in, what would it say? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, been, it's even tougher, right? To <laughs> phrase in a I keep thinking of the, the movie, uh, what's the movie called? They live. <laughs> have you seen that movie? No. Uh, it's, it's a movie by John Carpenter. Anyway, they, they have this big billboards. uh, uh the, the main character puts on a pair of sunglasses and he can see the truth behind the world and everything is like consume, obey. So no, I, I'm not sure I can give any one or two words thing. Cause, cause, cause I, you know, I, I know that someone like Colonel O'Brien, for example, he, he once said that if you want to do well in life, two things you have to do is work hard and be kind. Uh, yeah, <laughs> So I, I, yeah, I guess if, if one thing can get you somewhere, I guess just working hard, right? Just to put your head down and work at your craft. I think that's probably the one thing I can think of that, uh, that you're in control of, I guess, right? Because to be successful takes a lot of a lot of factors go into being successful, uh, you know, luck, uh, what other people do, the zeitgeist, like whatever you call it. But the one thing you can control is how much work you put into your own uh, creation. I think that's the, the thing that you can focus on, whatever else is happening around the world.
0: Yeah. And again, kind of going back to where we started, um, most people know you for winning the, the Eisner Awards, but that is after years and years of hard work and practice in your craft and a tinge of luck, I assume.
1: Uh, big big uh, a lot of luck involved. I mean I, I would say luck in terms of being able to do this in the first place, right? Like I said, my, my family circumstances allowed me to, to pursue this. Uh luck in the sense of the grant situation when it uh the book got whether a little bit viral because of the, the way the grant was withdrawn. Yeah, so I, I I think yeah, luck luck plays a big role in, in, in anybody's career, as as much as people want to say that it's talent, hard work, think that's only a part of the story.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, thank you, Sunny, for sharing your story. Uh, and hopefully this is helpful for anyone aspiring artists listening in to figure out their, their, their conviction and path in life.
1: Right, thanks, Terence. It was very really interesting questions. I think one of the better <laughs> questions I've, I've had. <laughs> interviews. Yeah.
0: And thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as we deconstructed Sunny's journey to the iceness, talked about comics as a form of communication, and how we can all support fellow artists living amidst us. I hope you're as excited as I am for Sunny's upcoming work on cartoon censorship around the world, and we'll see you on the next episode of Zero to One Humans. Goodbye!